chapter 5 as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. As you're getting there in Matthew chapter 5, page 678 in that pew Bible, just to set this up again for you, great crowds of people have been following Jesus for some time in the midst of miraculous healings, word of great things that are happening in and through Jesus, and he sees this crowd and seizes the opportunity to offer a series of teachings that has become known to us as the Sermon on the Mount. And if you haven't been with us, just to recap where, what we've seen so far, what we've heard, is the promise and assurance of blessing is the opening salvo of Jesus' greatest sermon. The Beatitudes, as we call them, that start this out, boldly announce all are included in the invitation to kingdom life, even and most especially those whom we perceive to be outsiders. And that may sometimes even be ourselves, to perceive ourselves as outside. No, all are invited, Jesus declares. Everyone can participate because of the grace of God. We cannot earn our place. We do not prove our worth. We will not be able to pay back what we receive. What God provides, he provides freely. What the Lord offers, he offers well aware of our credit history. What our Father gives, he gives out of love. Grace is getting not what we deserve. No, Jesus declares through this sermon, grace is receiving and experiencing what God wills to do in and through us. Grace, therefore, comes with expectations, but it's not a bait and switch. Grace isn't the Lord saying, I did my part, so now you do your part. No, Jesus, throughout this sermon, and that's why the start is so important to informing as we continue on, Jesus is declaring, my Father gives you grace. My Father's grace is yours so as to extend grace to others through you. We are blessed to be a blessing. Radical generosity from God empowers us to live generously for God. Jesus says, as we've seen a couple of weeks ago, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. All of us, Jesus says, by God's grace can reflect through the witness of how we live and what we say, the beauty, the brilliance, the flavor of Christ's truth and mercy. But as we saw last week, being salt and light is not first a matter of externals. How we look and act on the outside. Right relationship isn't simply about how we treat each other, Jesus taught us last week. It's about the orientation of our attitude toward God and our neighbor. Grace runs deep, and we saw how deep grace runs as the grace of God addresses the core of our brokenness, the envy, the rage, the lust, the insecurity that gives rise to sin like murder, adultery, and lying. Grace, in other words, seeks first to change our attitudes, our hearts, our minds, and our will. And as we re-enter into this sermon this morning, as we continue today, Jesus moves from teaching about our attitudes as they are affected by grace to describing some specific practices born out of grace. I invite you, if you have that Bible open to Matthew chapter 5, to read with me starting at verse 38. Matthew writes, Jesus says, You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
You have heard it, that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son, his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep those Bibles open, because our full passage goes to verse 18 in chapter 6. But I stopped reading, because I think you get the gist of what Jesus is saying at this point. Jesus... You heard it. You can see it right there in front of you. Gives us tangible, specific practices. Oftentimes in a sermon, as a preacher, that's the feedback I get. If people want specific, tangible things they can take away, they can do. How do I apply the word of God? And Jesus here at this point in the sermon starts to get really tangible, really specific about practices. But what's interesting, if you have those Bibles open, interesting to me is Jesus doesn't start with the obvious He doesn't start with the big three, the standard practices of religion. That doesn't come until a little bit later, as we heard, at chapter 6's start. He doesn't start with giving to the needy. He doesn't start with prayer. He doesn't start with fasting. Jesus begins with the unexpected, a bigger three, the surprising practices of not just any religion. You ever think about that? Giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting are commonplace among world religions, I mean, that's something we have in common across world religions. Jesus doesn't start with the standard practices of religion. He starts with the surprising practices of following him, of being a citizen of the kingdom of God. And you have them right there. What are they? Turn the other cheek, give the shirt off your back, that's my paraphrase, and go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek, Give the shirt off your back and go the extra mile. Jesus gives us tangible, specific practices, but if we can be honest, even this early in the sermon, from our point of view, his directions here are anything but practical. Turn the other cheek. Say what, Jesus? Turn the other cheek. What is your natural reaction if someone hits you? Be honest. What's your natural reaction if someone hits you? Hit them right back probably a little bit harder than they hit you so you get even with them, so you let them know you better not do that again. We want revenge. We want our pound of flesh. We consider if someone hits us, we hit back as being justice. That's justice. And, and for those of us who maybe feel a little bit guilty about it or maybe we think that maybe that's not quite right, some of us, Jesus points out, have, have, have maybe want to even justify that reaction with the Bible and go, well, well, the Lord said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says, as he said last week, no, we've missed the point when the Lord gave that standard through Moses. We missed it. God, way back when, 
when he said to Moses unto the people, an eye for an eye, a tooth for for a tooth, was actually trying to stem the tide of violence and vengeance. God was through Moses defining justice for the people of Israel, not as retribution, but as restoration. Because you see, and we forget this because we've actually... We've, we've seen this change within our own culture, but back at the time when the people of Israel were receiving this from Moses for the first time, the standard practice was very much similar to a movie that came out in the 80s called The Untouchables. Do you ever see that movie with Elliot Ness, totally fictionalized, and they actually meet, it's ironic, in a church, and the guy who finally tells the idealistic guy, Elliot Ness, how it works in Chicago. They put one of yours in the hospital, you put one of theirs in the morgue. They pull a knife, you pull a gun. That's the Chicago way. And back in the day, that's how it was. You steal from me, I kill one of your family. You kill one of my family, I kill all of your family. And God said through Moses, no, 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 that is not justice. That is not justice. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The punishment meted out must fit the crime committed by the person brought before the judge. And we have embraced that. We understand that. But Jesus is saying we have taken what God intended to stem the tide of violence and vengeance, and we've actually turned it around as a way of saying it's open season on people who are hostile or aggressors. And and Jesus is saying, look, the Lord didn't authorize taking the law into your own hands. That was never the point. Because not just in what God said through Moses then, but throughout the whole of the Bible, Old and New Testament, God repeats again and again, and this is what Jesus is underscoring, justice, final, ultimate, complete justice belongs to God. Turn the other cheek. Give the shirt off your back, which has this flair of economics to it. Someone asks, needs from you, give to them. Give them not just the shirt off your back, give them your coat as well, your cloak, Go the extra mile, this this flavor of hospitality. If someone wants your time and wants you to go a mile, don't just go the one mile, go the two. Give the shirt off your back, go the extra mile, come again, Jesus. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Really? How exactly is that supposed to work? I mean, and I'm going to get cynical here, and I'm going to, it's confessional in church. Aren't we passing people all the time who have their hand out? People outside the store, people by the freeway, people on the street. Do you get the same mail I do where half the mail is people asking for something? Every other television commercial asking for something? Aren't we passing people all the time who have their hand out? And if you really get cynical, if you frequent some places long enough, you see the same people on the same corner still looking for a handout. Are we really supposed to give away our resources? Are we really supposed to give away our time like that without running a background check? Without verifying our investment? Really, Jesus? A couple of days ago, I was sitting in a coffee shop and a guy walked up. This has probably happened to you. And he walked up to the table next to mine. And here's the thing. There were no chairs left at the table that he was looking to sit at. So he looked around and then he asked me, can I have one of your chairs? And I didn't care. I didn't care because no one was going to be sitting there. It wasn't mine. So I said, I don't care. Welcome to have it. Have you ever noticed it's easy to let go of things when they aren't ours? If we don't own it, we don't have any attachment to it. And that's why when it's that situation, we have that very common phrase that I used. Well, I don't care. It's not mine. Jesus, you see, is seeking to remind us 
where this sermon started, and that's why I keep coming back to it every week, because it's the, it's the foundation of everything that Jesus is going to say. Jesus is reminding us yet again here of where this message started, with grace. It's all grace. It's all grace, undeserved, unmerited, unearned grace. And we all nod our heads because we've grown up in the church or we've been coming here for long enough that we've heard that before, and we go, yes, it's all grace. Mm-hmm. It's all grace. But Jesus here is really pushing the, our understanding of that. Because if it's all grace, beloved, A-L-L, underline, bold, italicized, all grace, then we don't own anything. We aren't entitled to anything. Jesus is saying, hang on loosely to what you have, not possessively. Have more of the attitude of, I don't care. It's not mine. Yes, you can have it. And the thing is, it's easier to let everything go when you realize and accept nothing is yours. Turn the other cheek. Give the shirt off your back. Go the extra mile. Okay, I don't know how you're feeling at this point. I'm feeling this is getting weighty. But Jesus doesn't stop there. You have your Bible open. You heard me read. Turn the other cheek. Okay. Give the shirt off your back. All right. Go the extra mile. Whatever. Oh, and by the way, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Are you kidding, Jesus? Are you kidding? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. This, Jesus, I'm sorry, I need to tell you something here. I need to educate you. This is no way to get ahead in this world. I'm sorry, but love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you isn't even realistic. This isn't the real world. You're living in heaven. This ain't the world I'm living in. Many of us hear Jesus say in the midst of everything else now, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, so Jesus is basically saying, be a doormat or a punching bag. Beloved, Jesus isn't instructing us to be submissive victims to whatever abuse the world hands us. Jesus isn't giving license here to justify violence and oppression against anyone who is powerless, powerless people of any kind. Jesus will recall in the broader scope of the gospel, defended the woman caught in adultery. Jesus stood in the gap for those who were outcast. He stood up for those who were being abused. Jesus cleansed the temple of the money changers. No, Jesus here is calling the establishment into question. He's, he's describing an entirely different way of relating to each other. He's inviting us to live in relationships governed not by power, but by vulnerability. Let's be clear. Jesus isn't trying to modify the rules of the world. He isn't trying to modify the rules of the world. He's changing the rules. Or more pointedly, he's declaring what the law of love looks like in practice. Back last week, the law of love, now what it looks like in practice. Jesus is challenging us not to retaliate, but to give up our rights by offering reconciliation because these things that we hold on to so tightly are not ours in the first place. We don't have any rights and that's so hard to hear in our context, right? Because many of us are very well aware of what our rights are, and we can let you know what they are. And Jesus says, look, you don't have any rights. You can create whatever governmental system you want, whatever political process you want, but when it comes to the kingdom of God, you have no rights. It's all grace. And here's the thing. If you can, 
embrace that, if you can truly receive the grace that God is giving you, if we let go of our rights, if we let go of our desire to control and own and dictate, things become a lot easier. Things become a lot easier. I don't know if you catch it and be easy to miss it because of what it's put together with stings so bad, but the, the, every, the glue that holds everything together, the rubric that Jesus points to here is love. Love is the rubric for letting go. Unconditional love. Did you catch Jesus say this? Not just any love, unconditional love. Love not just for your friends, but love even for your enemies. Unconditional love. Sacrificial love. Love not just for those who love you, but love for those who persecute you. Sacrificial love. Beloved, any other kind of love than what Jesus is describing here, I want to tell you we can handle on our own. I don't need God to love those who love me. Love me, I'll love you back. I don't need God to turn the other cheek or give the shirt off my back to someone who loves me. You're on my team, you're with me, I'll turn the other cheek, I'll give you the shirt off my back. I'll go the extra mile, I'll pray for you. Cross me, I don't know you, I don't trust you, and I can't love like that. I can't love like that. Unconditional, unconditional, sacrificial love, this kind of love is impossible on our own. Impossible. And that is why I believe unconditional, sacrificial love is the most potent, tangible expression of grace. We all talk about grace. We understand grace as an idea, a concept, but we, we struggle with the tangibility of what is grace in practice? What does grace look like? How do, what, how do I point to grace? And Jesus here and much more ultimately later, will say, you want to see grace? You want the most potent, tangible expression of grace? It's unconditional, sacrificial love. And that is why the cross is probably the most powerful image and symbol in our church. And think about it. When we look at the cross, we, it communicates the grace of God, that concept, that idea. But then there's, in the fullness of the picture, of who is hanging up there, of who allowed himself to be put up there, of who unconditionally did this for those who wanted nothing to do with him, who did it sacrificially, suddenly grace has flesh. Grace has meaning. Grace has tangibility. Unconditional sacrificial love is the most potent, tangible expression of grace. But beloved, we can't give away what we don't have. We can't give away what we don't have. And that's why, and I've come at this a couple different ways, but it's, it's sort of the, the question that comes out of this sermon is have we received? How, are we living off of this kind of love, this kind of grace? I know we can all sit here and we can say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. We all can say, I've given my heart to Jesus. But have we truly allowed ourselves to be immersed in the implications of this kind of grace, the unconditional and sacrificial love that has been given unto us? Have you allowed it to absolutely shift the attitudes that Jesus talked about last week? How you think, how you feel, how you respond. Because the, what's between the lines here, which I really want us to catch, is we cannot give to others from an empty place. We cannot give to others from an angry, resentful place. We cannot give to others from a shattered interior. 
You can't give respect and compassion to a neighbor, let alone an enemy, when you have a lack of respect and compassion for yourself. We have this expression, this three-word expression, and it's a powerful one, do no harm. Beloved, do no harm, but do no harm starts with ourselves. We have that other saying, right, that old saying, that we can be our, worst en- our own worst enemy. And when you hear Jesus teach here, suddenly I can be my own worst enemy has more depth than I realize. Before I, I worry or, or even begin to think about loving my enemy, I need to recognize how God has loved the enemy that I am. The enemy that I am to myself. To myself. Turn the other cheek. Give the shirt off my back. Go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. These are the kingdom practices that turn heads and change hearts. When this kind of stuff happens, people see. Hearts are changed If they're hard, they get harder sometimes till the breaking point. And if they're hardened, sometimes they get soft. This is the kind of faith in action that makes an impact that leaves a mark. If you still have those Bibles open, and I hope you do, it's important to notice, I think this is really interesting, that Jesus in this passage starts with how we relate to our neighbor and then how we relate to God. Do you catch that? Jesus will later summarize the law when he says the whole of the law of love can be summarized by love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And what I'm pointing out to you is we hear that and we tend to think, well, it starts with my love for God and if I get my love for God right, then I'll get my love for my neighbor right. And Jesus says, nope, starts here, then it goes there. If you want to actually love God, your love of God will come out of your love for your neighbor. You can't separate them. The two are separate but inseparable. And it lines up with what Jesus says earlier in this sermon when he told us not to act so that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Love of God and love of neighbor are separate but never separated activities. We first serve and honor God through how we treat our neighbor. And most of us want to partition it and start with our personal and then go public. But Jesus starts with the public. Jesus starts with these public actions And then in chapter 6, he talks about three examples of personal devotion. The big three, as I said before, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. But here's the thing. None of these, these big three, are mentioned in God's top ten. You will not find them in the Ten Commandments. Giving to the needy, praying, or fasting. But, But what Jesus is addressing is in his time, if you wanted to make amends or to go above and beyond, these were the three traditional practices recommended. Give to the needy, commit yourself to prayer, and fast. In other words, these were the three practices, and I think this is true now as well as then, through which we might be religious. These are the three practices through which we might express our devotion to God. Jesus, very important, affirms these practices. He doesn't discredit them. They're they're important. They're good. But notice he uses these three specific practices as representative of a larger threat to our relationship with God and each other. And that larger threat is our tendency to look over our shoulder, to try to impress others. Jesus, through these very traditional examples, is pointing out a crucial vulnerability in our broken selves, our tendency to want the approval of others. It's easy, isn't it? 
It's so easy for that temptation. Do, the, do you like it? Are you happy? Is this pleasing you? Are you proud of me? It's so easy to let that temptation of the approval of others to infiltrate our motivations for what we do. In fact, it can be hard sometimes. I mean, isn't this true? It can be hard sometimes if we're really, really honest and we don't want to go here to separate our own self-interest from the interests of others. Am I doing this for you or am I doing this for me? In fact, we can so easily give into that temptation and this comes from a, I hope I'm not the only addict in this room. We can so easily give in to that temptation, the approval of others, that it can become like a drug, an addiction that gets so bad it separates us from God and separates us from others. Jesus, in fact, says right here, it can get so bad, we can get so used to congratulating ourselves, right? We can get so inclined to rehearse how generous we've been. We can get so good at feeling quietly smug that we've given what we have that Jesus says we should even keep it a secret from ourselves, You ought not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus says if if you work to be seen, if you work to be admired by others, you need to understand then the focus of your worship has changed. The focus of your worship has changed from God to you. If we claim to be worshiping God but are really worshiping ourselves, Jesus says we are hypocrites. We are play acting. We aren't practicing what we preach. And we live at a time, and many of us get really fired up about it, when, when whether we like it or not, one of the number one adjectives to describe Christians in the church is hypocrite. And many of us get hot and bothered about that. We don't like it. And we, you know, we basically put it on those disbelieving people out there. But the reality is maybe we ought to take a step back and hear what Jesus is saying. Is that label being applied to us because the truth is we care more about what the world thinks than we do about what God thinks? And as much as we tell ourselves we're doing it for Jesus, we want people to see the Christian way, the Christ-like way. People continue to get frustrated. People continue to want nothing to do with us because they don't want to bow down before our God. And they shouldn't because the God they don't want to bow down before is us. Jesus says here, look, if you're worried about the world calling you a hypocrite, here's the thing. Don't worry about impressing them. Don't worry about pleasing them. Here's what I'll tell you to do. Turn the cheek. You go first. Give the shirt off your back. Try that. Go the extra mile. Don't put it on them. You. You are the one who's empowered. You're the one who, I've been, who, who is following me. You do it. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says when we don't practice what we preach, Jesus says when our devotional practices towards God are really about our devotional practices for ourselves, the reason why people turn away, the reason why people get hostile is because our devotional practices are actually coming at the expense of the other person. They're coming at the expense of the very people that God has called us, empowered us to minister to. Do you understand? There it is again. It's inseparable. Love of God, love of neighbor. They're, they're integrated. You can't separate them. And it just looks wrong. It doesn't resonate when we're, you know, you can't sit there and say, I pray to God daily. I am a faithful prayer. But you know what? I hope you get smited. It doesn't work. 
You can't say, you know, I give regularly to the needy in the name of Jesus, but I'm going to sue the pants off of you. Doesn't work. You can't sit there and say, you know, I'm fasting right now. I'm setting myself apart for the Lord. But what, you want my time? You need me to go the extra mile? I'm busy right now. Doesn't work. <laughs> Jesus' counsel is pretty simple. Simple to hear. He counsels us to give up acting. He tells the church to stop being theater majors. Don't make a show. Don't make a scene. Let your practices speak for themselves. Don't point to yourself. Point to your heavenly father. Stop trying to impress others and let God make an impression on others through you. Jesus says we are to give, we are to work, we are to act in secret. Better that nobody knows what you're doing, not because there isn't anyone watching, but because the only one who matters, our heavenly father, the one who made us, who truly sees us, always knows what we need before we ask. We don't need to please others or impress them if we understand it's all about grace. Because if it's all about grace, we don't need to please others because we already have God's approval. We already have God's approval, and out of that approval, he will give us whatever we need. And that's why, if you have it open, we didn't read this part, Jesus transitions, I think, right out of this into saying, look, if you're going to pray, this is how you pray. And he gives us these words to pray that we looked at during Lent last year, a prayer itself, but a pattern for all of our prayers. And throughout this prayer is this continual reminder of where our focus ought to be, our Father, who art in heaven. My friends, I want to say to you again, Jesus is not saying that prayer, fasting, giving to the needy, or any of our personal devotional practices are bad. They're good. But in them, we have to regularly examine and ask ourselves some soul-searching questions. Why do I do the things I do? Who am I trying to please? And if I'm trying to please others, please remember this. If I'm trying to please others, it really means I'm trying to glorify myself. Am I trying to please others or am I seeking to glorify God? It's a, it's a much different thing to be puffed up by the approval of others versus continually with expectation, not groveling, to submit, to surrender before the grace of God and say, God, continue to work in me. Change me. Change my heart, oh God. Because the motives of our hearts are expressed in the way we live and the praise we seek. One other thing I want to put to you here is notice, if you have those Bibles open, that Jesus says to keep one's personal devotion to the Lord private, but it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't tell us to keep private the service unto the Lord you give to others. Meaning, Jesus doesn't have any problem with us showing off, turning the other cheek. Jesus doesn't have any problem with us giving the shirt off our back so others can see it. Jesus doesn't have any problem with us walking the extra mile, loving our enemies, or praying for those who persecute us publicly. What's interesting to me about this is that we tend to come to this passage and in the history of the church, not everywhere, but mostly, we get stuck on chapter six and we'll get into fights internally about how we're bragging and boasting about our piety, our prayers, our giving, and our fasting, or we'll get hot and bothered about wanting to be anonymous. I don't want people to know what I gave. I don't want people to know how I pray. I don't want to pray out loud. But you know, what's interesting to me is there's not a lot of conversation in the church about, hey, let's be public about loving our enemies. Hey, let's be public about praying for those who persecute us. 
We don't really wrestle much with being public about that because you might have noticed in this passage that Jesus talks about rewards. There's actually a specific line at the end of chapter 5 where Jesus calls for us to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And for many people, they hear the rewards in this passage. They hear that particular line about being perfect, and they think, oh, here, this is, here it is again. This means this is how we prove ourselves to God. This is how we demonstrate our gratitude for the grace we have been given. If you haven't heard me in the previous weeks, hear me again. That is not what Jesus is saying. The word that Jesus uses here for perfect is the Greek word telos, and that word telos can indeed be translated perfect, but it actually, the, the, the meaning of the word denotes something not so much morally perfect as it does something that has grown up, something that has matured, that has reached its perfect end. In other words, the word perfect, telos, as Jesus uses it here, is the goal or desired outcome of a thing. So to give you a visual example, a fruit tree's telos, we might say, is to grow mature and tall so that it can bear fruit. So Jesus isn't here talking about earning or proving. Jesus is, in essence, saying when he says be perfect, grow, mature, become what you were created to be. That's the reward. The reward is you're becoming your full self. You're becoming the fullness of the image of God in you. The, the, the fruitfulness image is great because Jesus will later say, you were created to bear fruit. I have made you. I have given you what you need to be fruitful. Bear fruit. And that means that if, if perfection isn't about moral flawlessness, but if instead perfection is about growing and maturing, then again, the reward Jesus is referring to here is becoming who we were created to be. The reward is becoming who we were redeemed to be. The reward is becoming who we've been empowered by grace to become. And that means, be ready for this one, that practice makes perfect that practice makes perfect. Bear with me. Winston Churchill once quipped this. Winston Churchill once wrote, they say that nobody is perfect. Then they tell you that practice makes perfect. I wish they'd make up their minds. It's a great quote because it frames for us the question. And the question is, have we made up our minds? Have our hearts been hardened or broken? Are we living, existing on the nobody's perfect side so we can avoid the practice side? It's easy, beloved. It's all too easy to just fall back on we're saved by grace rather than practicing loving our enemies or going the extra mile for a stranger. No, I can't do that. I know it's all about grace, but I clearly have grace deficient, but I'm saved by it. It's comfortable. It's much more comfortable to resolve to be less than perfect, isn't it? To keep the practice of our faith safely inside the four walls of the church. It's, it's more comfortable to keep our faith within the church. Maybe we'll have a little charity on the side as long as it doesn't cost too much and as long as the people who benefit from our generosity are appropriately grateful. But it's easier to be less than perfect, more comfortable than to practice giving the shirt off our back to someone who keeps inconveniently and inappropriately asking for a handout. It's much more comfortable to say, I'm not perfect, perfect I'm just forgiven. 
Rather than practice what Jesus tells us we can do by grace, we tend to double down and dare Jesus to live by his own words. We trust that Jesus will understand as we beg to borrow a little slack and get a free pass on praying for our persecutors. And if that's a slap in Jesus' face, we're sorry, but we know at least he'll turn the other cheek. Be careful, because when I say practice makes perfect, and I don't want you to leave with this, practice isn't about our own will. It isn't about our own strength. It's practice that makes perfect by the grace of God, letting God work in and through us. It's about learning, growing, being changed. And we run up against this worldly idea that at some point, at some age, it's different for everybody, some physical condition, we can no longer learn, we can no longer grow, we can no longer be changed. And again, I say to you, that is the biggest lie that the world tells us. You are continually capable by the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit within you to learn, to grow, and to be changed. It's what God desires for each and every one of us. We are not finished until we return home to glory. And beloved, we can't expect to be able to counter our human tendencies for self-protection and retribution if we don't practice. If perfection is a process and what I do today is the foundation for what I might do tomorrow, then I need to realize the life of faith is exercising generous practices by the grace of God. And those generous practices by the grace of God have less to do with an hour on Sunday. Even that's though where our practice starts. It has less to do with an hour on Sunday and more to do with using the other waking hours of the days of our week to practice the generosity of mercy, kindness, and love. God knows there are plenty of opportunities in a week to get it right. But again, hear this. When you think about the generous practices that God is empowering us to do, don't picture in your mind practicing being generous through gritted teeth or by your own force of will. Don't have the image that is so often stereotypical of the person who says, I need to lose some weight. And that picture is then them gnashing on celery, begrudgingly grumbling under their breath as they try to lose a few pounds. You know where that leads you, right? You eventually stop and you stutter and you start. You eventually give up and you end up being resentful towards those people who are thinner than you. You get resentful towards those people who actually like celery. (laughs) Beloved, our spiritual weight is not changed by our own will or effort. Our spiritual weight is changed by the Spirit, by the grace of God. Our heart has to be in it. And this goes back to attitude, as Jesus talked about, letting grace work first upon our attitude, our hearts and our minds. But we do have to exercise. Anybody here heard of Malcolm Gladwell? Read any of his books? I read a book of his called Outliers. And that's a book where he talks about um, people who seem to be exceptional in different fields. And I'm taking a part of this. I'm not making a direct correlation. But in that book, you probably saw this in a news headline because this is one of the things that came out of it, is that he, he had one of his fundamental premises in the book after doing a lot of research was it takes 10,000 hours of practice to become a master of something complex like music or painting or uh, computer programming or shooting free throws. 10,000 hours of practice. Maybe that's the real problem. We just haven't practiced by the grace of God turning the other cheek or loving my enemies for enough hours. I mean, are you you doing any of you guys like human calculators? Are you doing the math in your head right now? 10,000 hours? That's a long time, man. 10,000 hours. That's 416 days if you practice 24-7. So if we reduce that and we only practice eight hours a day, five days a week, that's about five years of practicing one thing. Jesus says, be perfect. 
practice. Grow, mature, don't be angry, don't lust, don't swear falsely, don't hit back, love your enemies. If we have to practice each of those good attitudes and behaviors by the grace of God for 10,000 hours, we'll never have enough time for anything else. And maybe that's the point. Not that there's anything magical about 10,000 hours, but maybe we need to practice by the grace of God all those things every chance we get continuously, consistently, unfailingly. Maybe Jesus isn't simply commanding something of us here. Maybe Jesus is commending something in us. Maybe Jesus simply knows by his grace we have more to give. We can be and do more than we have settled for. That we can absolutely make a difference in the world if we simply yield to his grace and practice following him. Because Paul will extrapolate, as he writes later on, building on this, it's as we yield to the grace of God, as we practice, our minds and our hearts and our wills will be shaped by the generosity and graciousness of the Holy Spirit working through us. As we practice what we profess, in fact, we become what we practice. The followers of Jesus, living as if we, as if we were made to be, mirroring the image of God. As we practice radical generosity by the grace of God in small ways, not only do we grow more like Christ, but as Christ grows in us, we are prepared to act in even more radically generous ways. Are you practicing? Because we are called to stand for those who are oppressed and threatened. We are empowered to use our privilege and our power. We have grace to give on behalf of others. Generous practices do not have to just apply to the heroes and martyrs of the faith. And many of us extrapolate this passage and say it's for super elite Christians. And Jesus never says that. He says that he gives his grace to everyone and we all have that capacity, that empowerment to make the world different, to make the lives of other people different, that God can do that through anyone. We are called to practice radical generosity right here and right now in our daily lives. Why don't we? What's the risk? Our feelings? Our image? Our pride? Our dignity? Because if you understand it's all about grace, that it's not by your power but by his, practicing means you can embarrass yourself. Practice means you can face plant and you will but you'll get back up. Practicing means you will fail, but failure will not be final. Practicing by the grace of God means you are dying to yourself. I told you in this sermon series that I always want to try to give you an example, and this may be tried, it may be expected, but so be it. As I tried to think of an example, I, any human example I could give you misses the bigger point, which is this. God doesn't just ask us to turn the other cheek, give the shirt off our back, go the extra mile, love our enemies, or pray for those who persecute us. God doesn't just ask us to do these things or tell us we have the power to do it. God leads the way. That's what Paul picks up on. It's this epiphany he has in Romans when he writes. And hear his passion in this. When he writes, you see, just at, right the, at ju just the right time, while we were still powerless, no power, Christ died for the ungodly, Paul goes on, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ 
died for us. And in that same chapter, Paul will go on to write that our sin, our state of powerlessness and ungodliness made us enemies of God. And yet God demonstrated his love by doing whatever it took took to reach us. The theologian S.M. Hutchins beautifully put it this way when he tried to, I think, echo Jesus and Paul and wrote, things become clearer if we can manage to stop thinking of the commands to turn the other cheek and so forth in fear of the advantage bad or pathologically dependent people would take care of us if we did and instead place ourselves where we belong in the scenario. We, you see, are the enemies from which he could extract eyes, teeth, and everything else and yet doesn't. We are the ones who have demanded his coat and received his cloak as well. We are the ones who beg from him and who are not refused. We are the ones who ask him to go a mile with us and then find, frequently to our annoyance, that he's decided to accompany us on two. If we would be like him, we must do the same for others. Jesus is the pinnacle example. I can point to so many historical examples, contemporary examples, and they're all good. But I, I hesitate to do that because, again, that witness comes from the power, the grace, the love of Christ first. Jesus did all he taught. He trusted God completely. He loved his enemies right till the end as he forgave those who had physically put him on the cross. This is the kind of love we are to emulate. This is the kind of love we are empowered to generously practice. Love God. Love like God. Love yourself. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. And in the world we live in, these kind of practices aren't seen as generous as much as they are foolish. Loving your enemy and praying for your persecutor means in this world they win and you lose. And no one wants to be a loser, do they? No one wants to be a loser. We all prefer to be winners. We all prefer to be winners. But Jesus has said in all of our effort to let others see and know how righteous we are, how much we're winning Jesus has tried to make sure we understand what we're truly getting when we win and what we're truly giving up as well. As those empowered by the Spirit, we don't don't have to succumb to the fear and insecurity that drive us to strike back or to show off. God's graciousness towards us spurs us to exercise generous practices. As followers of Jesus, our understanding of winning and losing is different than the world's. As those who have been named and claimed as members of our Father's beloved family, as brothers and sisters, you and I together, these grace-filled practices enable us to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. In the world we live in, these practices, once again, aren't seen as generous as much as they are foolish. But these grace-filled practices of turning the other cheek, giving the shirt off your back, going the extra mile, loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you, those are seen as foolish in the eyes of the world. But these are the grace-filled practices that change the world, that establish the kingdom of God as we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, beloved, let us continue to live with each other the way that God lives toward us. Let us continue to learn 
to grow in living generously. Let us continue to practice by the grace of God being gracious until Jesus returns and perfection is at last realized. Amen? Amen.